Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Our guest today is Dr. Santos Ramos, an assistant professor of integrative studies at Grand Valley State University, where he teaches and conducts research at the intersections of Latin American studies, intercultural competence, and digital technology. He also serves as program director at the Massa Center for a Community Engaged History Project on the Mexican history of West Michigan. Santos, welcome to Reimagining Black Relations. Hello, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Santos, your, your last name sounds Latino, but you look white. Can you share a little <laughs> about your background? Yes, I am lighter skinned. I come from a mixed family. So on my father's side, we're Mexican, and on my mother's side, uh, we're Irish. That's amazing. Irish, Mexican. That's an interesting mix. It is. It is. Uh, there's a, a story that I share sometimes in uh, some of my classes about, it's called St. Patrick's Battalion. It was a, a battalion of Irish soldiers that were conscripted into the uh, U.S. military in the mid-19th century to invade Mexico and essentially carry out this conquest, but they saw the atrocities that were being committed and they flipped sides in the middle of the war and started fighting for Mexico. And now there's plaques in, in Mexico commemorating this Irish battalion. So <laughs> that's a, a story that always kind of resonated with me because of uh, our mixed heritage. That's amazing. So tell us about your growing up. Uh, about growing up as a mixed <laughs> person. Um, some pretty... Uh, Interesting experiences, I guess I would say, growing up uh, in a mixed family. It was uh, uh, race wasn't something that was always necessarily talked about, but it was something that was always present. That, and I think that's a, a lot of people's experiences. Uh, once you kind of get older, you start making sense of some of those experiences that you had when you were a little bit younger, um, and that's really what kind of drove me to uh, education and becoming a professor is trying to make sense of some of those experiences that I had when I was younger. And I actually wasn't a very good student all the way through high school. But uh, and part of the reason I think was because the curriculum was so whitewashed that I didn't really have a whole lot of examples of, uh, you know, my cultural experiences sort of being represented. So education kind of felt like it was this separate thing that didn't really have anything to do with me. I was just sort of being told to do it. Uh, but then at community college, I started to, you know, take more literature classes and things like that and started to make some of those connections and just had lots and lots of questions. And I found education as an avenue for for making some of those those past experiences make a little bit more sense or just help to kind of contextualize them for me a little bit and understand my experiences within these larger systems and sets of relationships that are happening. What were those experiences you're referring to? You mentioned that it was never talked about, but it was always there. Well, it wasn't uh, something that was taught in schools, for example. Um, you know, you would learn sort of generic histories about Martin Luther King. I, I honestly don't remember learning anything about Mexican-American 
history at all, even though, you know, a third of what we say is the United States today used to be Mexico. Um, so it, it wasn't directly talked about as an issue. Um, so I didn't really have an outlet for it. But at the same time, seeing lots of instances of racism around me um, and not really knowing what to do with that as a child, you know, playing sports especially was like a, a, a place where a lot of racial slurs were used against me and um, some of my classmates and things like that from people from other schools, especially at like during games and things like that. So I have all these instances of, of, of race or difference that I was experiencing, but it was never something that was, you know, when instances like that would happen at school, the leadership there, which was mostly white, they didn't know what to do with it. Right. So they kind of tried to, patch it over and, you know, didn't really have uh, much to sort of say about it or teach around it. So yeah, that was, that was kind of my experience growing up is it was like present in these ways, but it was sort of a taboo subject that wasn't really brought up in school anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did you get in a lot of trouble? <laughs> did, did I get in a lot of trouble? It's, uh, you might say that sometimes. Uh, sports kept me in line a little bit because, you know, I didn't want to you know, get, get disciplined in this games, but yeah, younger, not, not for, uh, any, anything too serious, but, you know, kind of, like I mentioned before, school wasn't something that felt like it had an immediate relevance in my life. So I didn't really take it that seriously. So I, most of my getting in trouble was not paying attention, goofing around, things like that. <laughs> or talking in class or. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Now, what was home? about in terms of racism? Was it discussed at home? Were you prepped for anything? Your father is Mexican. Tell us about home. Almost in a similar way. I mean, minus the, the racist uh, <laughs> incidences, uh, it's, it was something we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about. So again, that was kind of what ended up really getting me interested in, uh, in books in particular, because it was not something that uh, I was being sat down and, and talked about these different dynamics, but I could feel the tensions or like, you know, I, I could feel the difference because we're one family in an immediate sense, but we go to one side of the family's events and get togethers and things like that. And it's, you know, we're the only not totally white people at it. So that felt very different from going to my Mexican family's uh, events where there's totally different foods being cooked and just a totally different atmosphere that was a lot louder and a lot, you know, warmer in a sense, or like I knew how to be in those spaces. It felt like a little bit more. Um, yeah. So that it felt kind of segregated in that way. That was my experience is, is uh, one of, of feeling like the spaces were very different that I was navigating as a child. Why do you think it's a difficult subject, even at home? Let's forget about school, the teachers, or even the society. Why is it a difficult subject to broach even at home at the dining table? I don't know that people are comfortable talking about it. You know, <laughs> to bring it back to education again, I don't know that we're, you know, if we're not teaching these things in school, where are people learning how to sort of talk about these things or make sense of them for themselves, right? Um, cause I'm one of the things that helped me in reading about these subjects, it helps you to make sense of your own experiences. It lets you know that it's not, you know, you're not alone. Like lots of people are experiencing similar sort of dimensions, right? But if we're not talking about it in our personal lives and we're also not receiving education around these, uh, issues, then where's the language coming from 
to even speak about these things. So I think it, a lot of it comes back to communication. Like if we literally don't have the language to talk about it, I wasn't going to start talking about it as a kid because I literally didn't have the language. I could talk about particular experiences, but you know, I also, because I wasn't really reading at the time is like, I literally didn't have the words and that's why I wanted to keep going to college and, and um, become better at language because it was giving a voice to the experiences and the feelings that I was having and, you know, those different relationship dynamics. So um, I think that's, that's part of why anyway. Yeah. At this point, I think I was exactly the same up until a few years ago when I started Your Black Matters. It was not a subject we discussed at home. I have three kids, never talked about racial stuff with them. I think for me, it's almost like this is the norm for everybody, right? Right. And it's interesting now that with the spread of digital technologies, it's kind of changed everything almost in the opposite direction where it's, it's easier to find conversations now, whereas before, you know, when I, I came up just before the internet really got popularized and everybody sort of had a computer in their home. So even then it was like difficult to find conversations that were going on. Whereas now it's, you know, in some ways I would, I would say that it's definitely better this way, but you know, I think we're, it's still very early on using these tools. And I don't know that we really have the mechanisms for, <laughs> for using them responsibly all the time. But, you know, I also have a, a five-year-old daughter who's, you know, it's in dealing with kids is just different too. Cause it's like, I want to talk to her about these things, but it's like, it's different with kids. It's like, you want to make sure you're talking. It's not just about talking about it. It's like, you're teaching them what to notice first or what to observe. So it's like, when do I introduce these things or when do I introduce a particular topic? It is or can be a, a delicate sort of topic to to breach with children in particular, I think. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more exposure on the subject, right? Yeah, that's the other thing about kids is they're <laughs> brutally honest sometimes about what they're <laughs> thinking and <laughs> just sharing their sort of in the moment thoughts and feelings. So it's yep. a whole other dynamic to it. Absolutely. So do you lean more towards being Hispanic or white? Oh, I've never... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely lighter skinned, but I've never felt white really in my life because of the way that part of it is like your own identity and how you feel. But a lot of it, especially as a kid, is how other people treat you. Right. So especially with my name, you know, Santos Felipe Ramos, I feel like when you're a kid, that's a big your name is getting called all the time. And that's like a big part of your experience. So my name getting called all the time and just how other people sort of treated me or saw me. Um, you know, I didn't really ever, that's one of the contradictions I think of coming from a mixed sort of background is like in one sense, um, I would say that I have definitely benefited from white privilege yet. I've never spent a day of my life really identifying as, you know, a white person. So that's like one of the, the contradictions of being mixed, I guess. So, so yeah, I've always been, uh, just in terms of how I've seen myself felt more Mexican. Um, but that, yeah, that's just been my experience anyway. I spoke to someone not too long ago. He's mixed. He looks very white. And he said when he was growing up, they told him, don't open your mouth. Just stay in the room. You get to hear a lot of things. But if the moment you open your mouth, they hear you speak, they know who you are. But facially, you belong yeah, well, that's the other weird thing about being mixed. I actually just got back from Mexico and it's sort of true there in the opposite way too, is like 
because my Spanish isn't great. So if I don't open my mouth there, it's, it's kind of a similar thing. And people are eyeing me like usually they understand that like, oh, he's probably Mexican. But then they hear me speak Spanish and they know, like, but he's not wasn't born here. So it's kind of a similar in the opposite way, too. So, yeah, navigating both spaces, I kind of feel like that, like insider outsider sort of thing happening simultaneously. When you compare your experience to the Black racial groups, do you see similarities or do you even know anything about the Black racial groups, their type of experiences in terms of racism? I mean, there's definitely similarities between, you know, and overlap between Black and Latino communities, all communities of color. But, you know, we're also, I think, also have our distinct sort of histories that, you know, shape who we are and sort of what we've experienced here as well. Thinking back, again, this is the kind of stuff that starts really early. I've had personal experiences with it, but also like a lot of authors that have shaped my thinking around this. So one of the the dynamics of being like a lighter skinned Mexican person is uh, a personal sort of experience I can give uh, in relation to black communities is like when I was around white kids at school, and this was a phenomenon because it took, that happened to me several times. It wasn't like a one-time thing. I would hear white kids start to say something racist against black people. Because their immediate thought was like, oh, no black people are around. I can kind of finally say this thing. And then as they're saying it, they notice that I'm there. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this Mexican person who kind of is lighter skin. And I see it like in their face sort of realizing as I'm there. And so they usually finish their thought and people kind of, you know, handle that in different ways. But it kind of, sometimes people's reaction would then be to then say something positive about Mexican people. It's like, oh, but it doesn't apply to Mexican people, you know, something like that. So, um, yeah, from a very early age, sort of seeing that just the, the I don't know if it's like a hierarchy that exists or something like that um, of other white children sort of categorizing people in those ways and not really knowing what to do with me in particular in relation to those things. So, you know, that happened a lot when I was younger um, and then really all, all the way through high school and college. And eventually I just, you know, some of those people that I grew up with, I just ended up kind of cutting out of my life because I've spent so long trying to communicate with them about some of these issues. And, you know, it just seems like at a certain point, people have to have some sort of openness in their thoughts or in their heart about learning about these topics or seeing them in a different way that, you know, just wasn't really present in those situations anyway. Yeah. I mean, I've read uh, a number of books that basically gives you the hierarchy, right? In terms of the racial group and the darker you are, the most likely you'll be at the base of the pyramid. And then as you get lighter, you move to the top of the pyramid. So, you know, like you're black, black, like authentically, totally black, stays at the base, but like black Mexicans, they're kind of at the base too, like black Hispanics, but they probably move a little bit up. And then you have like the Indians, right? You have very dark Indians too. There's somewhat there as well. So the darker you are, the lower towards the base of the pyramid, you are perceived to be in. Now, have you interacted with Black people from a personal level? And do you understand some of the plights that they're faced with? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, um, you know, I've been uh, through personal experiences, just, you know, having friends and spending a lot of time studying. One of my favorite authors, and this was like sort of a, a turning point in my education. I felt like I took a Caribbean literature course and 
really fell in love with the work of Aimé Césaire, who was a teacher of uh, France Fanon. And at the time, I was really in love with like surrealist art in general. And Aimé Césaire, is a, he was a primarily a surrealist poet. Um, and his homeland was in a, the Caribbean, a small island called Martinique. And uh, so he wrote a lot about colonialism and how colonialism sort of impacted uh, Black communities. And he wrote this essay called Discourse on Colonialism, which is still one of my favorite reads because of just aesthetically, being a surrealist poet, he mostly wrote abstract, creative poetry, but sort of channeled that sort of energy or, or aesthetic into this essay about colonialism and its impact, especially on Africa and the Caribbean. And one of the sort of jarring moments of that read, and I think what really kind of turned me onto it for, you know, the, really the rest of my life was he, how he was talking about Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany, because he was sort of critiquing the way that people reference or the place that people hold that atrocity uh, in the sense that it's sort of assumed oftentimes or referenced as the worst thing that's ever happened in the entire world. And his point was, yeah, of course it was awful, but for centuries, these imperial powers have been going into Africa, across the Americas, into the Caribbean, and enacting these genocides. Yet, you know, we sort of have this esteem or use that as a reference point of like, this is the worst thing. And that's a sort of convenient way of thinking about it because it's an instance in which uh, the, the Holocaust, where the U.S. in particular can position themselves as the good guys, uh, where white people can kind of position themselves as, you know, saviors because they stepped up to stop this sort of atrocity. But if you look at a lot of the other examples, that's not the case, right? So that was that was the first time that I heard somebody sort of not critique the Holocaust itself, but critique how people talk about it and how that sort of reflects the hierarchy that you were just explaining in terms of what is actually deemed a tragedy, right? So, um, yeah, and understanding the experiences of, of uh, Black communities in, in the U.S. Uh, and other places, I think, you know, drawing from those kind of perspectives that understand it in that long view of centuries of history, I think, is really, uh, really needed. Absolutely. That was a good one. I'm going to actually look into that and see if I can pick it up and read. It sounds really interesting. Santos, you mentioned your escape route was education. Why did you focus on Latin American studies, intercultural competence and digital technology? Can you elaborate on how you got into that field? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, initially it was just uh, it was really personal trying to, to make sense of my own experiences trying to give language to to some of those feelings that I was having but then the other part of it is you kind of get connected to these larger stories and the experiences of other people right and uh, a lot of my research in particular and even some of my teaching is really localized it's about Latin American history that's happened locally here in Michigan and so when you start to to learn about some of these different topics you see how little work or resources have been given to, to actually fund some of that work. So that's a lot of the stories that need to be told, right? And so that's kind of what has driven uh, much of my career up to this point is, is trying to, to advocate for equity in, in 
that way, not just in higher education, but, you know, in, in other sectors as well, in, in corporate contexts, in uh, the nonprofit world. Um, sometimes the way that people, speaking of higher ed, though, talk about <laughs> college experiences, it's it, it's almost like when you hear critiques about college, it's uh, like people think it's all ethnic studies and all gender studies. But if you actually look at where resources are allocated in, within universities, it's not typically those those disciplines, right? Those are some of the most, uh, you know, we're often struggling the most to, to get resources. It's a lot of, you know, um, sort of resources being given to uh, hard sciences and, and business schools and things like that, that, you know, in some ways integrate some of that knowledge as well. But, you know, that's why it's been interesting to me uh, more recently is because I see within the larger context of higher ed or even other sectors that it's just not, I don't think, receiving the kind of funding or, or the attention or focus that, that it should. I would love to learn more about the intercultural competence aspect of your research. What does that entail? Yeah, so intercultural competence is, uh, so I teach a class called Introduction to Intercultural Competence that's a part of our, uh, we have a certificate program. So this is a field that originally started within nursing in particular. So thinking about the need for people in medicine to be able to communicate with people from a variety of different backgrounds, whether you're talking about gender or race or other kinds of experiences, right? So it definitely has a lot to do with race and ethnicity, um, but it's also broader than that uh, because it can kind of be applied in all these different ways. So how do I kind of navigate the world, which is incredibly diverse as somebody regardless of what my background is, I have my one set of experiences. So how do I traverse all these different uh, contexts in which people have a totally different set of reference points for, you know, what they value, how they communicate, you know, in professional settings, what it means to be a professional. Um, And so those are some of the, the skills that we try to teach in intercultural competence. So it's an interesting course and program because you want to be able to, teach about you can't teach every every single ethnicity and cultural history in the world right so you want to have some deep dives in there but it's really about you know how do i kind of navigate that world when i don't know you know all the these different histories and things like that because that's also often the case as well so uh, we do teach some specific examples of, of different cultural histories and things like that but um, it's also about navigating in that way as well. Fantastic. I want to explore your thoughts on equality, equity, justice, particularly as it relates to Black people. What, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> sub-issues to sort of get into there, but I, I guess to kind of connect it to what I was talking about before, one of the things that I teach in my intercultural competence class, we do do a uh, unit on the prison industrial complex and uh, the work of Angela Davis, which I, I assigned pieces of, um, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her book, uh, Our Prisons Obsolete. Well, that was one of the books that was kind of really formative for me in understanding. Uh, it's one of those books, you know, when Black Lives Matter protests really started to take off, you know, being a professor, sometimes people would kind of reach out to me for you know, what are some resources? Like, I, I see these protests happening, you know, how can I learn more? Her book, Our Prisons Obsolete, is one of the things that I would recommend to people. Um, 
on the one hand, because it's beautifully written in a way like these complex issues about uh, that are sort of described for a general, a more general audience. She does a really good job of doing that. But um, she's sort of questioning the the use of prisons in society, which is this, you know, I think assumption that people often have that these are totally necessary in their current form to have these institutions and the way that we currently have them. And she's sort of challenging that assumption, looking at some historical examples, but also just looking at the impact that they've had on black communities in particular. So to me, it's important to for people to understand that background and how prison, the role that prisons have played for decades, maybe even centuries, and how they've impacted black communities uh, in order to understand these protests that are happening now. Because it's a little bit hard to kind of just jump in and people want to have just a discussion about whatever the latest cases of, of police brutality and did the cop do this or that in this particular instance, which is useful discussion to have if you're trying to decide the outcome of that particular case, but it doesn't necessarily do anything to understand the greater, what is shaping this moment historically, right? Like Tanisi Coates wrote that, I'm going to paraphrase him, but like he emphasizes that the world was built. You know, we were not, it's not just neutral or it didn't just happen to be this way, right? It was made through, these issues were, were made through centuries of redlining and the prison industrial complex. Um, so when we see the instances of police brutality and protests or actions against them, we have to understand where, where that's coming from historically. So I don't know if that gets at your question, but that, that was kind of what came to mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a root cause to what we're seeing. Many of what you see or what you hear are just instances, right? Instances of the experiences, but the real root cause is what you're describing that will be very critical. What are you doing in your space to bridge this gap, even professionally? The overarching thing for me professionally is, is thinking about what is the purpose of college? I feel like that's the, as a professor, that's what it comes back to for me because it's, uh, and this has definitely changed. It's become much more business-like over recent decades. Um, but I would argue that, you know, the point of college is not just to, or it shouldn't be just to create future good employees, right? I think we have a responsibility to uh, be teaching these issues and these histories to students who are going into all sorts of different fields, not only because they directly impact or interact with people from different backgrounds, but, you know, it's, it's through these kinds of specific policies, norms that we set, whether it's in real estate or business or whatever else that end up shaping uh, how how black communities and how other communities of color experience their lives and experience greater rates of poverty, for example. So to me, a lot of it comes back to, I mean, there's micro moments of like, what am I going to teach today? Or what are we going to assign? But it's, there's a bigger sort of uh, struggle that I feel like I'm engaged with within the context of higher education, of advocating for the importance of these classes and of these programs uh, because we can't just be focused on teaching students how to uh, how to be profitable, whether that's for them or the companies that they're they're going into, right? So, you know, that balance with the the extremely high cost of higher education today itself, you know, is something that you know I'm always uh, sort of navigating myself professionally, and and I find that's my my biggest sort of outlet or avenue for 
for addressing some of these issues. This year, I'm actually on a, a leave of absence because I'm doing some uh, DEI work in in other contexts, nonprofit and corporate settings. So it's like it's definitely a different. There's some different obstacles to overcome. I, I you have I have more time as a professor to do a deep dive into what is the history behind this or that. Whereas I feel like in a lot of nonprofit and corporate settings, it's very skills oriented and like, tell me what I need to do right now. And I'm over here as a professor saying, but we need to learn all this other stuff too, or else it doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. So that's just another interesting part to, to uh, aspect to see how this kind of plays out across different sectors. There's definitely a lot of the same issues, but unfolding differently. I think. Absolutely. Are there any other areas you would like to share with our listeners today that I've not actually asked you. <laughs> this is my outlet to do this. Okay. Uh, one thing that, because I've had DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion on my brain, I also do a lot of work with indigenous communities. So one, I'd also toss another word into that mix, which is sovereignty. I think a lot about like inclusion in particular uh, and how the work that DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion folks are doing is about trying to improve institutions uh, and make them more improve experiences or fight for civil rights within those uh, uh, scenarios. And what working with indigenous communities has shown me is taught me a lot about sovereignty, which is a little bit different. It's about having actual autonomy over uh, over your own experience. And, and I mean, in some ways, that's if you're talking about creating your own institutions, your own government, that's something that's sort of totally separate. But I guess I mention it here because one of the things that I think is important to hold on to about sovereignty is that it's about imagination, which I think is important for everybody to kind of hold on to in, in working for social justice within any context that we need to continually exercise that as a skill as well in terms of imagining widespread, really deep kinds of trans transformation. So not just patching up holes, but that we need to take the time and invest in our own imaginations to envision some radically different sort of solutions that are not just about let's switch around this little policy, but how do we create a whole, how do we replace this institution? Or uh, And I think that's what I appreciate about Angela Davis's work too, when she writes about prisons, is she's saying prisons are an approach that's trying to sweep all these different complicated issues under the rug, like all together, we just want to disappear them. And she's saying, this is why the solution doesn't, it's, there's not a one size fits all solution that will replace prisons because it's really, we need to address socioeconomic status, race, gender, all these different things are sort of wrapped up in it. So, you know, that's what Angela Davis and some others have, have really done for me is stress the importance of that kind of envisioning or really just imagination and holding on to that. I feel like it's something that when you're younger, or at least when I was younger, it was easy to, oh, let's just, you know, we're going to change everything, you know, because you're not really aware of the limitations yet. And then I felt myself kind of lose <laughs> some of that hopefulness or naivete a little bit. But it's also important to hold on to because we need to, we need to envision some of those, those big solutions too, I think. I couldn't agree with you more. Trying to reimagine, you know, in a holistic way, not just the status quo. If we don't do anything, 
kids in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, they just continue to build on the current status quo. But what you're proposing is, let's reimagine, doesn't have to be what we have today, right? Let's, let's rethink what we want to build. What should the future look like in the next 50, 100 years? Let's just reimagine it together. I love the thought process. And I want to truly thank you for sharing your journey with me. I truly appreciate you being my guest today. Thank you so much, Santos. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you. Absolutely. To all our listeners, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and encourage them to subscribe on yourblackmatters.com. Also, if you have any feedback for me, please email me at francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Santos, I want to thank you again for your contribution to this history we're making together. I'm really excited to be a part of it. And I say God bless you and your family. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America and Mexico and Ireland. (laughs) See you next time. Bye-bye.